I first preached this, I first studied this passage back in 1998. Now, how many of you guys were here? It was even before uh, Cornerstone. It was back when we were in Cypress Baptist Church. How many of you guys were here when we first studied this in 1998? Show of hands, please. Okay, so, you guys are, yeah, a few of you, uh, not more, surprisingly few. Um, so much has changed in nine years. So much has changed. That was our, my first year of marriage. I was married in 97, so I was one year into my marriage. It was before Elizabeth, Emma, and Ethan, and before Stern was seven months pregnant. It was about 25 pounds ago. <laughs> maybe, maybe 15 pounds ago. <laughs> so much has changed. As I looked at the sermon and the contents of the message, the content hasn't changed. My desire and need for growth hasn't changed. And my desire for Cornerstone to grow hasn't changed. It's amazing to me, after nine years of the Christian life, I still need to grow so much more. Uh, I still, I, I'm still pursuing the same things. Pursuing Christ for which He took hold of me. And um, this message, this study has been used by God as a turning point of our church years ago and hope that it would continue to spur us on to a greater knowledge of Christ and the appropriation of that knowledge to our lives so that we might not just grow old as Christians, but that we might indeed grow up, we might mature, we might grow in holiness as we follow Christ question is, how does one grow? How does one mature spiritually? I think most of you want to grow, and that's a good thing. It begins with desire. I think any Christian who is truly walking the Spirit would say to himself or herself, I want to be spiritually mature. I want to better understand the Gospel. This week, in sharing the gospel, I found myself stammering at points. I found myself not being able to answer some key questions about the gospel. I need to grow in a better understanding, better in comprehending, better in communicating the gospel of Christ, better in living out the gospel in my life. I think any true Christian who's walking the Spirit will state that to him or herself. They will have this desire to be a godly man or woman. I want to be all that God wants me to be. But desire without knowledge and discipline is just that. Just desire. It's a study in fertility. It is just daydreaming. I want to ask you, how does one grow as a follower of Christ? Now, many people use analogies from sports, everything from golf, basketball, and softball, and they think that is the way to grow. Just like we commit to hours of practice, whether it be an instrument or a sport, likewise with my Christian life. If I just put my my body into it, my effort, my strength and energy into this discipline, I will grow as a Christian. I remember... um, when I first came to the States, um, 
you know, as good Korean kids, my parents wanted us to play instruments. So if you if you're a Korean girl, you don't play piano. You're from North Korea. You're a spy. You're you're a double agent. You're not really South Korean. So all Korean girls learn to play piano, and all Korean boys learn to play some string instrument. And uh, the violin quite didn't fit my neck at that time, so they they had me play the cello, and that thing was like three times my body size, like 900 pounds, and. I was like, what am I doing with this instrument? So I'm in the streets of LA, Koreatown, carrying that instrument to uh, music school, back and forth, heat of the day, and I want to burn that thing. I want to, <laughs> man, I want to get a big axe and chop it down, you know. Why couldn't I you know, be assigned a cool instrument, like the sax? You know, Marcus playing the sax, why not? Or electric guitar. God's will for me at that time was to play the cello. If you love cello, I apologize. Nothing, nothing personal. <laughs> the first song I learned to play was Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And I learned how to play it ten different ways. I'm not even joking. And uh, my mom was here. She can verify for this after this. And then uh, we had a concert, you know, the parents. And so I was like up there playing the cello, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, in ten different ways. Right? Wow. So at the very least, I appreciate when someone plays an instrument. I know the hours of practice and labor and discipline that went to, to, to master an instrument. But that is not the way in the spiritual dimension. Just mindless jumping in to the Christian life is not the way to spiritual maturity. We wish it was that simple. We wish that it was just that easy, just Excel in the Word and prayer and scripture memory and evangelism, read books, and we will grow as believers. Well, that is not the case. These are not the basics. In 1998, I, I, I saw this, and here we are nine years later. I still believe it to this day that these external performance of these exercises, though important, are not the basics of the Christian life. Something more radical is needed to truly grow and mature as a believer. I believe the key to true and lasting growth lies in having biblical attitudes. Biblical attitudes. Going beneath the surface. That we need to approach Scripture memory the right way. We need to approach prayer the right way. We need to approach uh, fellowship, Sunday worship, fellowship the right way. For if we approach these things with the wrong attitudes, it's all for naught. It's all in vain. It's mindless performance of duty. Only if we approach it with the right attitudes, right motivations, right biblical mindsets, Will these things truly be profitable? Pastor John MacArthur wrote this in his book, Master's Plan for the Church. The goal of a pastor and the leaders of a church should be to generate proper spiritual attitudes in the hearts of the people. They can't just say, you need to do this and you need to do that. They must generate the spiritual attitudes that will motivate people to proper behavior. 
A church should work on the attitudes of its people. I'm not interested in trying to make sure the people of Grace Community Church have a certain way of giving their money. Coming to church Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, Wednesday nights, pray five hours a week and read the Bible every day. Those things are not to be approached on a legalistic or superficial basis. The emphasis must be on generating proper spiritual attitudes. If the right kind of spiritual attitudes are present in a church, the church will take care of itself. Spirit-controlled people are going to do spirit-led things. They will naturally conform to the biblical pattern of the church. Pastor MacArthur was so helpful to us nine years ago. We read these truths together as leaders and said, we believe this is right. We must work on the heart issues of people, our heart issues, not try to conform people to external obedience, not behavior modification. We must not approach ministry in a legalistic way. We must deal with people's attitudes, their paradigms, their way of thinking, their hearts, and everything else will follow. We committed to this, and that is why like even our retreats, we have almost 100% attendance to our retreats. But we don't wring anyone's necks. You know, we don't twist anyone's arms. We don't make it a, a, a part of membership where if you don't come, then, I don't know, you get a visit from Elder Bob at midnight, you know, and <laughs> he takes you out to the backyard and has a long talk with you. Like we don't scold you for not coming to flock. We don't make you do ministry. We don't. <laughs> make you wash cars? Wash that car, boy. You know, you better, you're a spick and span, you know, sister. You better clean that window. We don't do that. All we've tried to do is, is work on the heart issues, knowing that if believers' hearts are, are right with Christ, are right with God, then all these things will just naturally follow. And we praise God that that's what we see at Cornerstone. It's our hearts motivating you and my heart motivating me to seek after Christ and do His will, not some kind of a ministry of virtue and prevention of vice ministry at Cornerstone, trying to impose certain things on the body. So we want to look at some key attitudes of the Christian faith. We have a class starting today on the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. We want to look at some fundamental Spiritual attitudes that are key to growing as Christians. We can go to many scriptural passages throughout the Bible to study the key attitudes necessary to grow and mature as believers. We can go to 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Peter 5, Ephesians 4 and 5, Philippians 2, so on and so on. But really one of the most jugular texts of scripture is found in Romans 12. Just for today, we'll just study Romans 12, 1 and 2. We'll see how far we get. If you have your Bibles, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing 
you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In fact, this whole chapter is filled with the kind of attitudes we need to mature as believers. Before we jump right in, let me give you a, the shortest outline of Romans possible. Chapters 1, and, 1 through 11 is the gospel of Christ. And 12 through 16 really, or 12 through 14 more specifically, is the application of the gospel. Chapters 1 through 11 is high theology, is redemptive history. It's all about justification, total depravity, unconditional election, definite atonement, perseverance of the saints. 1 through 11 is the theology that, that fuels our lives, 12 through 14. In chapters 1 through 11, you will find less than five commands. It's all indicatives. It's all explanations of what God has done. 12 through 14, Paul goes into second gear and he gives imperative after imperative after imperative. What we are to do in light of this Mount Everest of God's grace. In light of the grand mercies of God, this is the appropriate way of living as a Christian. Anything less is not the will of God. Anything less does not please the Lord in light of God's glorious gospel. So we will look at the application. One day, if God wills, we will look at chapters 1 through 11. God grants us grace. The pastors and elders of our church will gather together and will attempt to climb Mount Everest, Romans, the book of Romans. But not today, Right? We'll do maybe a, a Google Earth kind of uh, a tour of Mount Everest and just look at the applications that are found in verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12. I want to point out that verses 1 and, 12, 1 and 2 are connected by an and in the Greek. Uh, in some versions, it is translated as two separate sentences. But in the Greek, it is one long running sentence. So my translation, my, my way of stating verses 1 and 2 goes this way. We can present, we are to present our bodies to the Lord as genuine, holy, and acceptable sacrifices. And that is possible only if we renew our minds and not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Because it is one sentence, I believe, the thrust, the basis of living lives as worship to God, pleasing, acceptable, and, and, and perfect, is by renewing our minds. So that is our first spiritual attitude that we must accept if we are to grow as Christians. Renew our minds. We can't just jump in to the Christian life with our old theology, with our old way of thinking, our old belief system. We think, well, I know the gospel. Everything else is peripheral. I'm just going to jump in and start serving Christ, start ministering, start following Christ, and I'll just uh, keep, continue uh, and hold to things that I believe. No, the Bible calls us. Paul appeals to us. You need a radical readjustment. You need to 
reformat your hard drive. You need to completely erase your old memory, old ideals, old principles, old truths, that, or, or perceived truths. Erase it and start all over. A radical paradigm shift where we reject our old thought patterns and adopt new ones. A major change. Long time ago in hospitals, doctors would do surgery with dirty hands, with hands and instruments riddled with germs and bacteria. Majority of patients would die because of infections and doctors had no idea what was going on. It was not until Louis Pasteur discovered that germs were alive, germs that we couldn't see. Just mere washing them with water was, was not sufficient to get rid of germs. And these germs, unseen to the naked eye, were the, were the cause of these deadly infections. Once they realized that germs, bacteria, and viruses caused these infections, they had a paradigm shift. doesn't matter how well we do surgery. doesn't matter how well we diagnose their, their illnesses. We have to cleanse our instruments, wash our hands. They meticulously wash their hands and their instruments to prevent infections and countless thousands of lives were saved and are being saved to this day because of this simple paradigm shift. Well, this is what God is saying here. This is exactly what God is saying here. We can't do the right things with wrong theology and expect God-pleasing results. It is foolish, utter foolishness to expect change in our behavior and to think that we will achieve long-term growth. And for many of you, if you find yourself committing the same sins, making the same foolish decisions again and again, or finding that you are not, you're simply not growing, or an area of your life is not growing, the, the, the issue is not just more effort, more grinded out. It's not more work. We need to think back and tie that to your theology. What am I believing and that is wrong, that is causing me to act in this way that is not pleasing to God. Paul says, work on the inner man. Renew your minds. This is what Paul is saying. Do not be conformed to the world, world's attitudes, but be transformed by the truth. Renew your minds. He's telling us that the spiritual battle that we are engaged in it's primarily ideological in nature. Our fight, our battle is not out there, but it's inside of us. It is internal. And our only offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. See, we are, we are renewed only by God's Word. That is why God's Word is so important. Only God's Word pierces the heart. Right? It's living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, Hebrews 4, 4, 4, 4, 12, where it cuts to and judges the thoughts, the intentions, the, the attitudes of the heart. And it does spiritual surgery, precision surgery, the area where we need it the most. That's what you need. Desperately, that's what I need. This outward... Um, Behavior change. It's just fooling yourself and will not achieve long-term growth. 
I encountered this. I had this illustration. I might as well use it. It was vivid for me back then. Maybe it will still be vivid for, for me and for you today, nine years, nine years later. When I first gave the sermon, I had just been um, uprooting weeds at my uh, townhouse that we bought after our first year of marriage. Uh, at that time, the market, as it is now, was tanking. And so after one year of renting, we were able to uh, look for a small townhouse to move into. And we found this uh, foreclosed uh, townhouse just right here in Anaheim. And um, it was a mess. These guys, uh, these two brothers are living in there. They stopped making payments, lived there for six months rent-free, and they trashed the place. And they allowed their animals to live there. They had dog droppings all over the townhouse. So when I first showed this townhouse to my wife, you know, the real estate agent's all excited. He's got a sale. I'm excited. You know, like, it's not great, but it's something. We call our own. And my wife opened the door, and she smelled the place, saw the mess that it was in, and she would not walk in those doors. She would not come in the townhouse. Come on, Serene. Like, we'll open the windows, you know, glade. You know, that thing's powerful. They'll replace the carpet. They'll paint the walls. We'll figure it out. Come on, honey. That's all we could afford. I'm a pastor, right? So somehow, I convinced her, bought the place, but the backyard was a mess. Weed waist high, right? All over the backyard. And it was in the middle of summer. So, by God's grace, I'm dumb, but I'm not that dumb. I didn't go out with uh, working gloves to remove the weeds by hand. Right? It's very dumb. Why is that dumb? Because you do that, six months later, the weeds are back. Because you've got to get the roots. Right? Just cutting the weeds above the ground doesn't do anything. So your pastor, dumb but not that dumb, went to Home Depot, got the most powerful weed killer known to man. Right? It's a like concentrated version, and I didn't dilute it. Right? <laughs> I just directly sprayed it through the weeds. And every morning, it's the joy of waking up to see the weeds die from the root. Never to return again. Right? The spiritual analogy is the same. I think many of you are approaching the Christian life outside in. You're trying to stop sinning. You think the Christian life is just externals. Stop this, stop that. And you find these sins constantly coming back. And you don't know what's going on. I thought we dealt with this. I, I uprooted these. I cut this from the surface. I didn't see it for a while. Why is it coming back continually? Because you're not going below the surface to the root. And you can't go there through legalistic means. You can't go there through rituals. You can't go there through physical effort. The only way to go, to go there is by the Word of God. By renewing your minds with Scripture. This is what the Bible is telling us. Do not merely destroy the leaves. You've got to go deeper. Destroy the core of our poor behavior, our attitudes, our own old sinful beliefs, thought patterns, and replace them with biblical attitudes. This law replacement, that must happen. See, mortification of sin is only half the work. There must be vivification. There must be putting off of the old and putting on of the new. 
Right? That's why Paul says in Colossians, you who are lying, stop lying and tell the truth. Thessalonians, you are stealing, stop stealing. And instead of stealing, what do you do? You have to work and make money with your own efforts. Earn a living. You who are gossiping, stop gossiping. But that's just the half of it. If, if your sin is gossiping and slander, and you're just going to like, I'm going to stop gossiping, stop slandering, and thinking that is what Christ is wanting from you, you're only half right. And you'll be half successful. Which is, you're failing. The goal of the Christian life, by having biblical attitudes, is to do away with slander and gossip and start speaking the truth in love. Stop talking behind someone's back and start talking face to face. Truth in Christ because you love them and you want you care for their soul. You speak the truth to them to build them up in Christ. That is the full orbed approach that God is calling us to do. So it is possible first and foremost by renewing our minds by the word of God. Let's go to the second one. All right. Second one. Present your life as a sacrifice to God. All right. Present your bodies as a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, priests would come and you as a worshiper will bring sacrifices to worship to God. In the New Testament, Christ has given Himself as a sacrifice once for all for our sins. Now our responsibility as recipients of that grace given to us by Christ's sacrifice is to present our lives as sacrifices to God. We don't... So like, it's kind of a misnomer. Maybe it is in some way. Or we give offering to God. Our worship praise is an offering. But ultimately, all of these things, if it's not part of our lives as an offering to God, it's just ritual, it's just religion. It's just external work, not pleasing to God. The first and foremost offering that we are to give is our lives. Our, our lives. The idea, the mindset that God purchased me. He redeemed me by the blood of Christ. He is my owner. I belong to Him. So, there is no con- consideration, no pers- idea where this is my time, my possessions, my strength, my money, and I'm going to give a portion of it to God. What a great believer, what a great person I am, that I'll give this portion of my time to God. I'm going to give a little more to God of my possession, a little more of my strength to God, as if that's what God is calling us to, as if God is asking us for a greater portion of our lives, when in fact... In light of being renewed by the Word of God, our mindset must be our life. My life, our lives. It, they, it all belongs to God. We were bought by Him and we are to use it for His glory. I think our musicians highlight this to us. Um, they use their voices to worship God. Some better than others, but they use their voices to worship God. They use their abilities to play piano or guitar or bass to praise God. They see it as just instruments 
to worship God. A maturing believer sees his life, her life, as a simple instrument in God's hands. For God to use as he pleases for God's own glory. God's own glory. Sadly, too many Christians act like they're the owners. And they are paying God and giving to God what belongs to them when in fact God owns it all. Deuteronomy 8, 17-18 Moses said to the people of Israel, You may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember Yahweh your God, for it is Yahweh who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Therefore, Paul said in Acts 20.24, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Testifying to the gospel of God's grace. I, I, I believe your maturity lies in direct proportion to the degree you have this biblical attitude. The degree you see your life, the purpose of your existence is not for yourself. But the purpose of your life is to bring worship to God. To that degree lies your maturity. To the degree you are man-centered or self-centered. To the degree you use your life for self-pleasure. To that degree you're immature. You're pursuing still sinful things. Three adjectives describe this worship. Three adjectives, the kind of worship. First, that it is living. We're not just giving things. We're giving ourselves. We're giving our lives. So Christ wants us not to die for Him, but for us to live for Him. Second adjective is that it is holy. It is to be pure, righteous, set apart for the glory of God. The first to describe the object of our worship. The third is different. It points us to the direction and focus of our worship. So I believe this is the next attitude. The first is renewing our minds. Second is presenting our lives as a sacrifice to God, as an offering to God. The third, because it's directed towards the, the person, directed towards God who receives our worship. This is a third attitude. Talking about our motivation. That it is pleasing to God. Pleasing to God. So our, our motivation for renewing our minds, our motivation to giving our lives as worship to Christ, it's all because we want to please God. We want to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So, and we talk about this all the time, Sometimes we can understand right, at, right motivations by looking at the wrong motivations. And this tells us that it is one of the threats to Christians, one of the temptations to Christians to do the right things for the wrong reasons. And this is what I war against. And this is what I appeal to you to war against. Because if we do the right things for the wrong reasons, it's all for naught. See, if we wash cars for man... If we come to church for people in, in a pleasing people kind of way, fear of man kind of way, 
if we do go to Mexico missions or overseas missions or give offering to the church or whatever that we do for the Lord, doing those questions, but if we do it with wrong motivations, it, it nullifies the purpose of our worship, which is to be pleasing first and foremost and solely to God. This must be the driving motivation of all that we do because it is a distinct possibility for Christians to actually sing to God for wrong reasons. Right? Sing because it, they like the sound of their own voices. Right? Sing because they had a rough weekend. They just want to sing. Right? It doesn't matter what, who they're singing to. They're, they want to sing because they just enjoy singing. Right? They're praying because they're praying for their selfish needs. Serving God for self-centered reasons. Instead, we are to do this, please God. Now, the following illustration is uh, often used. It's often used because it is so poignant. It is so uh, uh, insightful. Used by many, you know, Ravi Zacharias, Alistair Begg, even MacArthur's used this story. A story about Eric Little, right? Cherries of Fire. You guys seen that movie? Uh, you young, young people, you guys don't see good movies, right? So, application during the summer, see chariots of fire. First hour is tough, right? Their accent is hard to understand sometimes. It's English, but kind of not. <laughs> Hang in there, big payoff. The second or next two hours, <laughs> it's a long movie. What's about a man named Eric Little? He would die as a missionary in China. The story is not about his missionary endeavors in China, but as a runner in the Olympic Games. His opponent is Harold Abrams. And this man runs solely for his own fame, his own notoriety, his pride, his selfish gratification, to a point where he says, I will not run if I don't win. Because he, he ran for his own ego, for his own pride. I was talking to a guy maybe a year ago after playing ball, and he was saying, James, Oftentimes I play ball because to stroke my ego, to get an ego boost. Yeah, he was kind of a good baller, and I could see that. He had a tough week or a tough day, and he's good at sports, and he goes out and he you know, takes him to school, and he feels good, like, yeah, I showed this guy how to play ball, and he did it all for himself. He was confessing that to me. Well, that was uh, Harold Abrams. He did it for himself. And if he couldn't win, he'd want to run. The movie contrasts Mr. Abraham's motivations for running with Eric Little. Eric Little's motivation for, for running was far different. There's a scene where he's doing missions work with his sister. He comes late to one meeting because he was uh, practicing, was training for the Olympics. And he comes late and he's helping her close down the, uh, the service room. And you could tell his sister's upset. And she, she confronts him and says, Eric, you know, we're doing God's work here, doing missions work, sharing the gospel. Why are you so into this running thing? You're devoting so much of your time, effort, and energy to running. What is your motivation? And Eric Little replies, classic line, says, Jenny, God made me for China, and I'm going. But God also made me fast. And when I run... I feel God's pleasure. I sense 
God's pleasure. So we don't want to extrapolate this illustration and justify all manners of worldly pursuit. You can't say, God made me good at gambling, and when I gamble, I feel the pleasure of God. I know, right? That's like, this is not inspired scripture here. Don't use this and say, yeah, when I live for myself, man, I feel God. Because, you know, heart is deceitful above all things, right? So you can't. But his motivation, though, was not the pride in beating other people. His motivation was, my life belongs to God. I want to give my life for God's work and missions. And he does. In the Boxer Rebellion in China, he dies as a martyr for the Christian faith. But he ran because when he ran, he felt God's pleasure. And that was driving him to run in the Olympics. He ran to please God, to glory, glorify God. His joy was not in the tangent joys of winning the race, getting a gold medal, beating other competitors, telling the world that he is the fastest runner in the world. No. He ran because he believed it pleased God. That is the third motivation, third attitude that we are to have as we approach our lives. I'm doing this because I want to glorify God. I want to please Him. That is my utmost attitude. One more and we'll close. We'll go to verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you want, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. The key term here focuses on our attitude. The key word is think. This verb connotes not so much the act of thinking, but the direction of thinking. It is a warning to fight the old attitude of overestimating our importance overestimating our influence and ability. It's a call to not entertain exaggerated ideas about your own importance or abilities. But to think of yourself with humility, with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. And the the teaching there is not, if you're mature, be more humble. If you're less mature, you can be more prideful. He's not allowing for pride. He's saying God has given us a measure of faith to each of us. And that faith is, the go- is in the gospel of Christ. Chapters 1 through 11, Paul has just exposited the gospel. How God chose us not because of any righteousness in us. But He chose us because of His own righteousness. He's expounded on Romans 2 and 3 of the depravity of man. The utter wickedness and sinfulness of man. So our, our estimation must be consistent with the gospel. That we must be humble knowing that we are, apart from Christ, totally wicked, sick with sin, and without Christ we produce nothing but sin. So Paul's appeal is that our attitudes must reflect that faith. It must be consistent with it. That if we believe in justification by faith alone, yet we are prideful, yet we are boastful in our righteousness, that we do not understand the concept of the gospel, let alone justification by faith alone. Because that grand doctrine pummels our pride. It deals it a death blow. It teaches us that we cannot take credit for any service rendered in the church. 
any achievements in our lives, that everything that we are, everything we do, are gifts from God by His sovereign grace. Paul is not proposing a degreed humility in light of a certain measure of our faith, but he is proposing, he's, a, he's pleading, he's begging us to have complete humility because of the gospel of Christ, for that alone glorifies God alone. That very year, 1998, a high school student came to me and, uh, you know, you know, I shared this 10 years ago, or 9 years ago, I shared it again, and you guys know me, this is, I can share in all humility. I was encouraged by her. She was a student of, our, student of ours, and her assignment from school was to write about someone who was a hero to her, but is still alive, and she wanted to write about me. She selected me and asked for an interview. Her question was to me, James, what have you accomplished for the Lord? And we have been studying the Gospel of Matthew, and I thank God for that, because through our study of Christ, my vision of Christ's beauty and loveliness and holiness was clear, and my view of my own depravity, my own just wickedness was clear as well. If it was uh, earlier in my Christian life, someone asked me that question, I'd be like, where do I start? How much time do you have? Have a seat. Get some coffee. It's going to be a long talk. And I would rattle off all the things that I've accomplished. But by God's grace, my answer was far different, far simpler, and really uh, true. I told her nothing. I have accomplished nothing for God. Anything of worth. If I've done anything good, pure, righteous, and noble, praiseworthy, anything encouraging to the saints, it wasn't me. I'm a wretched sinner. God did it all. First to last, it wasn't me. And you know, nine, nine years ago, I had that mindset by God's grace, and I'm still pursuing that mindset to this day. Where I, like last night, people were saying, Oh, thank you for the gospel, preaching the gospel. I know, that wasn't me. Right? You know, when I do ministry in the church, lead as a shepherd or as an elder or a pastor, that's not me. I know who I am. That was the Holy Spirit. That was the Word of God. That was God doing it. He's the author and perfecter, and He did it all. He is pure and righteous. What I've done for the Lord, what I've accomplished for the Lord is sin. All I've done is... Sin, sin, and more sin. And that's all me. I told her, and I tell you today, all the sins that I've committed in my life, am commit, am committing and will commit, all of them, I produce them. They're my grand achievements in my life and in my ministry. They are my fault, not God, not my parents, not society. You know, it wasn't, you know, my school teachers. It wasn't my peers in high school. It's not because of Cornerstone Bible Church I'm sitting this way. You're provoking me to it. Right? It's not. It's all me. I say this because, not because I'm humble, but because it is true. Because it is true. So here we just uh, scratch the surface for um, biblical attitudes. To the degree we employ them to our lives, to the degree we're mortifying sin, 
or mortifying the influence of indwelling sin in our flesh. The influence of it. We're, we can't kill it until we die and we're with Christ. Sin will always be in our flesh. But we can limit its influence. To that degree, we employ these attitudes. We're mortifying sin. At the same time, we're vivifying Christ and the Holy Spirit in us by replacing wrong attitudes with the right ones. Exhort you this week to fight the good fight in our minds, the battle for our minds. Our hearts are idol-making machines, lying to us every single day. We wake up to lies. Lying to us, deceiving us, day by moment by moment. Fight that fight by renewing it with the Word of God, by battling it with the sword of the Spirit, which is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we, Lord, we want to pray. I want to pray as a shepherd of your church, under shepherd of your church, in behalf of Elder Bob and. Marcus, Pastor Marcus, and on behalf of all the flock shepherds and leaders, Lord, we come before you and we ask you to help us, help our church, that you be merciful to us and you be gracious. We're so prone to be um, relying on our flesh. It is evidenced by our lack of prayer. It is evidenced by our lack of earnest, private devotion to you. We're so uh, prone to boasting in our knowledge and boasting in our intellect and boasting in our abilities. To people that have been given much, much more is demanded. You've given us so much and we fall short of what you demand from us. Lord, on behalf of the pastors and leaders of our church, we pray for the flock here at Cornerstone Bible Church. Would you grant us to fight that fight in our minds and to renew it by the living Word of God. Lord, to, re- to replace these false doctrines with sound doctrines of the Scriptures. That we would view our lives as living sacrifices unto you. That we would see all of it our lives, our families, our relationships, our possessions, our time on earth as belonging to you, and that we are to use it, lay it at, at, at your feet for your pleasure, for your glory, that if you choose to use us, we delight in you. If you choose not to, we delight in you. If you choose to use us in a way that's different than our plans, we delight in you. Because our goal, our desire is to please you. And that through it all, we would be, we would have our mindset in accordance with the faith that you've given to us. That you've saved us uh, undeservedly. So we would truly be humble men and women, giving all, just all credit to you alone. Thank you. For how much, how far you brought us thus far, nine years, we see your faithfulness. Lord, um, help us to continue to trust in you and you will cause us to continue to grow all the more on the day of Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen.